We are talking about healthy fermentations this week. I know that we talked about yeast a a couple months ago. And so definitely feel free to listen to that conversation. Um, It might be a good place to start, but you should be able to just jump right in with us to this one as well. Anyone that's done a winery tour with me has heard me say that yeast are like little Olympic champions. If you give them the right nutrition and the right environment, they're going to go and win all the gold medals. (laughs) And... (laughs) um, But yeast are also like amazing little mofos that will ferment in conditions that you don't think they can survive. So Ashley and I, right before we started recording, we're kind of talking about what are our goals in in this conversation. And I want to talk about how you can push your yeast and sometimes... um, that that like there's a fine line between like your little champions yeah between pushing them too far and giving them unideal conditions but then there's also that really nice um like if you have uh if you just stress them a little bit sometimes they'll actually give you a more nuanced uh flavor or aroma in the final product (laughs) um so we're just going to go. Sorry, I'm thinking of catfish wine. Sorry. <laughs> we're going to go a little bit deeper about yeast and making sure your fermentation is healthy today. Um, and yeah, winning gold medals. I'm Haley. This is Ashley. We are Whole Cluster Conversation. So let's. Uh... Said we have a whole awesome episode that we really dive into yeast and talk about what yeast are and the importance of yeast. So definitely check that out. But we wanted to do just kind of a little quick recap in case you know want to just dive into this one and so you're not totally behind on on the yeast game. So I think let's just jump right into the important part of yeast, which are talking about those ideal conditions uh, that make our little champions work the best for it. I'm going to keep rolling with this, Haley. <laughs> our gold so medal those, winners. <laughs> uh, yeah, what are those conditions that make our gold medal winners? There's really three things that as a winemaker you want to to um, make sure your yeast have. One is a, a temperature range that they're going to be successful in. And the second is enough oxygen. A lot of people, when they first get into wine, are a little scared to introduce oxygen into their wine, which is a very valid point. As a consumer, you're taught like, don't, don't, you're going to oxidize your wine. Don't, you know, if don't open a bottle and then put the cork back in and then try to age it, like that's going to ruin the wine. But during fermentation, oxygen is your friend. After fermentation, when you're not fermenting anymore, but you're aging, it's basically your enemy. So there's, there's this switch that needs to get flipped. So when yeast are active, oxygen is good. And then the third um, stool leg is nutrients. You want to make sure your yeast have enough nutrients to do what they do. So I know we talked about really the importance of temperature. I think, yeah, all of them are important, but in my mind, temperature is like so important. So what? how do you control temperature on the commercial side of ferments? And yeah. I'm sure everyone can glean a little bit from that. Right. Um, so there's basically, when you have a commercial size winery, um, it, let's start with just like one ton fermenters. That's um, if you've been into a, a smaller 
winery, you usually see reds being fermented in bins Mm -hmm. that are open top. Um, And when you have a fermentation like that, the best way to control your temperature isn't by like, oh, it's getting warm. Let's go put it in a colder spot because all that heat is being generated in the wine itself by Mm -hmm. the yeast. So really, you actually want to disperse the heat as much as possible rather than just like moving the bin. (laughs) Moving the bin to a colder area can definitely help um, to disperse. In conjunction with what you're about to introduce. Right, which is you want to disperse the heat by using a a pump over or a punch Mm -hmm. down. So either taking the juice that's on the bottom of of the bin or tank. Mm -hmm. You can do pump overs and tanks as well. Um, It's kind of preferable to do pump overs and tanks versus punch downs. And you're going to take, so a lot of times uh, heat rises. So when Mm -hmm. you have that, all that solid stuff on the top, that cap, because the CO2 that being produced by the yeast that's um, converting that sugar into alcohol, it's pushing all of that solid stuff that will float to the top. So you're taking the cooler stuff that's on the bottom and um, spraying it over that cap to try to disperse the temperature. And mm-hmm. in doing that, bring the temperature down. The other way that is very similar, um, just to kind of a different method, is doing a punch down. So using a tool mm-hmm. like a giant um, uh, a potato masher and pushing that solid stuff down into the cooler juice underneath. So that both of those methods help disperse a lot of the heat. I was thinking just now about like with bread making and some other things and how they kind of have it like a little, their method, something that kind of circulates around all the time. Are there, I, you know, I just had never thought of it. Are there anybody that does something where it's more a mechanic thing that's happening like all the time or yeah. pretty like frequently? Yes. Oh, that is a thing. There's a couple of things that people do. Um, I don't know if it's more for heat dispersal or for, mm-hmm. um, I mean, if it's a mixer that's just constantly rotating that must. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the solid stuff and the liquid stuff may kind of, yeah. then it would help with heat dispersal. And you can have, you can get giant tanks that have like a huge, basically center pivot that just Mm -hmm. have like a mixer. I haven't seen... I think they do that with whiskey and beer, right? Oh, yeah. That's true. Mm -hmm. Um, I think so. And I don't know what part of the process they do that with whiskey and beer and like which stage it's in. But yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, different processes of making stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then there's not so much for heat dispersal, but, uh, well, probably a little bit for heat dispersal, but... It's very popular in Australia and it's becoming more popular in other areas. You do a submerged cap fermentation. So you actually build like a lattice structure in your bin or tank so that as Mm -hmm. that CO2 starts being produced, stuff can only float up so far and then it gets like stopped by this lattice structure. So you don't have all that cap forming on top. It's just like kept underneath the surface of the wine. And then do they somehow mix that or is it at, just... I think at the end they just, uh, I'm sure they do some sort of pump over. So they pull like mm-hmm. the actual juice from below and pump it over the top to try to introduce oxygen and stuff. But yeah. I've never seen it. I've, I've looked at videos and stuff, but I've never actually seen in person a submerged cap fermentation. Oh. 
Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So the other big point that you talked about, I mean, I feel like we're just going to go through all three. So <laughs> how, um, and, and thinking about kind of with that submerged cap too, how do you get oxygen to the yeast in the wine fermentation process? Yes. So especially in big tanks or like mm-hmm. bigger things that wear or in more potentially commercial. these little <laughs> systems, I'm going to call them. <laughs> Um, So (laughs) the way that oxygen is introduced typically in fermentation is through pump overs. So Mm -hmm. even at huge wineries where you have tanks that are several thousand gallons or, you know, bigger than, than kind of it's easy to imagine, you'll have a special pump hooked up to Mm -hmm. the bottom of the tank and then a giant hose that goes up to the top of the tank that literally just like pumps stuff up out of the bottom and over the top. It looks like a fire hose. I mean, for people yeah. that are not in the industry, it looks like a big fire hose kind of scenario. And when you have a fermentation that large, typically mm-hmm. a lot of the the winemaking process is automated. So you might mm-hmm. need a person there to be like, okay, everything's functioning well. We're going to turn on this pump over. But more often than not, the really, really huge places that, 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 that it's automated. So that pump over okay. is actually like, being run by a little machines yeah like a little robot and there's just a person there making sure that it's not for some reason going horribly wrong okay this is such a tangent but I just have to tell you this really quick <laughs> I recently saw an automatic with like a robot and like a laser pumping for dairy cows and it was amazing so robots are taking over in amazing ways (laughs) (laughs) so very cool but it was cool because with them and I'm sure like with the automated system of this it was really cool because it was a family family run farm and they were saying how it was just it was a lot of investment for them, but at the same time, their return on their investment was totally worth it because yeah. of just the labor hours of yeah. like nine hours a day. And they were like, so instead of like having to be out here doing this, we're now able to do other things. So yeah, like, able to yes, sell it's more quote of unquote, taking away a job, but it was like within the family. And then they were like, now we're able to do these other things yeah. because we're not out there milking a cow or doing punch downs right. for nine hours a day. Yeah, so. it is a huge investment. But if you can basically figure out like how many people would it take? How, mon- how many salaries is mm-hmm. that? How many yeah. vacation days? Like, And then you kind of work backwards from there. Sometimes automating things for yeah. s- small family businesses too is yeah. the way to go. Yeah, so. I mean, again you think about those jobs you're taking away and try to redistribute them into well, new Well, that's places. the thing, though. I, yeah. I think the thing that doomsdayers don't think about yeah. is the fact that just because you automate something, you can have your cow being milked by a robot, like you still need somebody to come in and help you give the cow loves <laughs> for four hours a day. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's other jobs that then you can be like, wow, we're saving so much money after the initial investment that we can afford mm-hmm. to have somebody come in and redo our mail. Like we can have a marketing manager or, and typically the yeah. jobs that are then opened up are more skilled um, labor rather than unskilled labor, which is another like, oh, wow. Our, like, yeah. we're, like everybody's moving up. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, there's something to that too. But yeah, it's a, it's kind of cool to just think about those types of things within the process. So sorry for yes. that divergent, but it's something that I'm thinking about, like yeah. having this discussion about all these different things. Yes. So, the um, other thing that a lot of people, um, getting back to kind of introducing oxygen, if you're doing yeah. barrel fermentations, a lot of people start mm-hmm. to get really freaked out when they're new to barrel fermentations. Well, what do I can introduce oxygen? Like, how are my yeast going to... Um, don't freak out too much. <laughs> There's a mm-hmm. couple ways. Either you F up the barrel that you just bought brand new and you rip the cap, the um, basically the head of the barrel is what we call it. So like mm-hmm. you stand it on its end rather than the mm-hmm. way that you see them in wineries so that you can then do punch downs and do other things in mm-hmm. the actual barrel. Or you can stir it. You can leave enough headspace so that you can still stir the barrel which gets mm-hmm. all the solid stuff also like re um, more flocculating and like it's um, mm-hmm. redistributed within the juice, but it also introduces a little bit of oxygen. And you can also buy special, I haven't worked with them, but in the wine world, a lot of people talk about micro oxygenation. So you buy like a special mm-hmm. tube that's going to like bubble oxygen into your wine at a specific rate. Oh, uh, okay. And, and that's in the barrel. Yes. Yeah. And you can do it in tanks as well. Microoxygenation mm-hmm. is also a, I don't know, because I haven't done it, I feel a little bad saying this, but it tends to be kind of a the Band-Aid that fixes all mm. the boo-boos <laughs> for a lot of oh. people in the wine industry. So if you have a, a lot that you're having slight problems with or you're like, I want this to get to market faster, like how can we do that? A lot of times the the answer that you'll get is, well, try microoxygenation. And again, I haven't used it that much, but the idea is a pretty sound um, idea, which is over time, when you age your wine in barrels, that micro oxygenation is happening naturally. So you're just speeding up that process a little bit. So you can get, you know, you can fix a problem if you start to have a problem, or you can get that that wine to market earlier and it tastes better than it would if you were to to release the same wine without micro oxygenating it. Again, I haven't done it, but... It, the the idea is sound in my mind, but it also kind of defeats the purpose a little bit of making a making a wine that you're supposed to just like it's supposed to be soul crushing until you get to share it with the world. <laughs> I mean, I was just thinking it's another tool in your tool kit or maybe your first aid kit in this sense of completely you know, like how you add yeast or temperature changes that this is just another thing to to impact the oxygen yes. portion of it yes so completely that's where I was going on a more optimistic point <laughs> <laughs> okay so what kinds of nutrients do the yeast need in fermentation first off yeast need sugar to convert into Mm. alcohol. So measure your sugar before you start fermentation. And Mm -hmm. it's fine if it's a low sugar, like it's going to be a low alcohol wine. That's not a problem at all. But they do need some sugar. And people, uh, especially I would say, if you're you're a home winemaker buying concentrate, you want to you want to follow your directions, but also have a way to kind of check yourself. Because if you add too much water and there's very, very little sugar left, mm-hmm. you're going to have trouble with your fermentation. Or if you, maybe you bought some concentrate that something happened to and there's actually, it already fermented and somebody didn't notice, oh, you're yeah. going to have problems too. So you're not going to have your sugar you thought you had. Yes. These aren't the sugars you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> the um, The other thing 
I'm still laughing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that was so bad. I'm so sorry for all those Star Wars fans out there. <laughs> okay, continue, Haley. So the big thing, if you're a new winemaker or just getting into winemaking, you're, you need to know how much yeast assimilable nitrogen or yan okay. you have in your juice or must. Break that down, please. Yeah. (laughs) So yeast need a certain certain level of nitrogen. And if you just measure the nitrogen in your wine, if you're like a super scientist, you're like, I just going to measure the Mm -hmm. nitrogen and you know how to do that. Cool. You need to make sure it's going to be available to the yeast. There are certain types of nitrogen in your must or juice that are not available for uptake and use by your yeast during fermentation. This makes sense to me because of our like composting discussions as well as like plants and like talking about available nitrogens for plants. And so sometimes like you, you, you know, put that thing out there and you, you, you say, Oh, okay. I'm going to add this to like, I think about my crops, like I'm add it to the crops, but if it's not available through having like your microorganisms and other things that make it in an available form for the plant, it's pretty much pointless. And then you have leaching and all these other environmental issues. And go for you the same. (laughs) Yes. And going one step further, even if you, if you're like, Oh, I'm just going to make sure there's plenty in there. Mm -hmm. Just like if you put on too much compost, you're going to have issues too. Um, So you can overdo it and you can underdo it. (laughs) Really, you want to have those more tools in your tool belt. So have your your juice tested or must tested. And there's a couple different, you know, ways to do that. You can do it in-house if you have the right equipment. But um, most, well, I shouldn't say most. um, I don't know. I don't know what the percentage. Some wineries do it in-house. Some wineries send it off for testing. I believe that, so this is also, you get into this kind of fuzzy area where the science and the artistry of winemaking don't always Mm -hmm. go hand in hand. I believe the industry standard is if you're less than 120 milligrams per liter, which is 120 parts per million of yan, yeast assimilable nitrogen, then Mm -hmm. that means you should add enough yeast assimilable nitrogen at some point during your fermentation so that that your yeast have enough nutrients to have a healthy fermentation. So once you so once you get your numbers back, if you're less than 120 parts per million or milligrams per liter, you then need to decide how are you really low? Are you just mm-hmm. barely low? Cuz depending on yeah. on it, that's going to change the way that you go with forward with the next step, which is adding nutrients. So, when you add nutrients, you're going to want to there's couple ways that most winemakers add nutrients for the yeast. One is when you rehydrate your yeast to mm-hmm. start your fermentation if you're if you're using commercial yeast. There's another difference mm-hmm. there. I don't know how people do it when they're using wild strains of yeast. Um, mm-hmm. I would assume they're similar enough of strains of yeast that they also need similar amounts of nitrogen available. But again, I don't work with a lot of wild yeast or any wild yeast right now. So after you get your numbers back, And if you're just barely low and you're using a commercial yeast and you're using a rehydration, I think it's called a rehydration agent, 
Um, so mm-hmm. basically it's going to be like a go firm is, the, is uh, what it's called or things like that where you're dissolving kind of this nutrient pool and then once it comes down to temperature, you're adding your yeast in. That mm-hmm. has yeast assimilable nitrogen in it. Low levels, but it still has it. So if you're only at like 115 milligrams per liter and you use something like GoFirm to get your fermentation mm-hmm. started, look at your numbers because you might be adding just enough to get it up to an, a, a healthy amount. Okay. The other thing that's more common is I would say it's, again, varies from winemaker to winemaker, to winemaker but I usually go up to, if I'm below 120 milligrams per liter, I do the math to get up to about 150 Oh, that's a lot more. That's only 30 parts per million more. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, then, <laughs> then the parts like... Parts per million, that's the kicker there. <laughs> and we also go through that secondary fermentation and bottle. So yeah. I want to make sure we have enough to get through our primary fermentation. And then typically, mm-hmm. well, uh, it varies from year to year because some of our stuff we're working with so so consistently that we kind of know what it does from a year to year. But then we'll test it again and see like, do we want to add some more nutrients for these yeast to be able to re-ferment and bottle? Mm. So the thing that most winemakers add to their fermentations so that their yeast have enough um, assimilable nitrogen is a product called DAP, diammonium phosphate. And DAP. DAP, DAP, diammonium phosphate. So that ammonium is the same mm-hmm. thing as <laughs> your n- nitrogen, ammonium, nitrogen, same Got family, <laughs> just uh, chemistry. I didn't really do the chemistry thing. It's all kind of <laughs> percolates uh, oh, through my brain differently than a professionally trained chemist. <laughs> so you want to add your DAP after your fermentation starts, but not uh, too far through. And the, mm-hmm. the reason that is it'll, it's kind of like, it's like timing in your, in with plants putting, mm-hmm. you're not going to put a huge amount of organic material that or um, compost on two weeks before the freeze. Yeah, for sure. So There's you want, you want your aspect. yeast to be healthy enough in, in a part of their life cycle where they're able to use that nitrogen rather than like, oh, we're kind of finished. And now there's all this nutrient here. Mm-hmm. So you don't, it's about halfway through that you don't want to add below, uh, below your half, after you're halfway through your fermentation. Mm-hmm. Another kind of just uh, yes. thing is 10 bricks. If you're below 10 bricks, oh. you probably shouldn't add more DAP. Um, but I'm sure people do. Um, I don't okay. know what the actual science is behind it. For me as a winemaker, I don't like adding a bunch of nutrients. Like you Mm want to have a healthy place for your fermentation, but I also don't want to add so much nutrients that all of a sudden you have this beautiful juice that your your yeast is able to ferment in and like have a great healthy fermentation. And then there's all this stuff left over and all your spoilage organisms are like, oh, hell yeah, this is the best place to party. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a balance between having enough but not having so much that you're creating more problems for yourself. You kind of think of the successions of like, like, okay, we are going to be here. We don't want to get to this other point too fast before. I'm just thinking of like my own world. And I'm like, before the weeds invade, the bad things start invading um, too Totally. Okay. Okay. Um, Can we just, I know I should have like stopped you earlier, but you were on such a roll and I didn't (laughs) want to interrupt. Um, 
You're being you so have polite used the this word morning. musk a few times, and I would love for you to just like define what that is, and maybe yeah, you, you know, just go back to that. I know that's we probably should have done that at the beginning. Yeah, Sorry. must like I must do this. Must Uh-oh. is um a uh well, I'm, I don't know what the actual definition is, but it's probably something along the lines of a combination of wine juice and solids, or sorry, grape juice and solids that is being used to make wine. So typically with white wine or rosés, you just have juice. And then with red wines, you have must. And then once okay. it's fermented all the way, you start calling it wine. Or to okay. be confusing in the wine world, um, a lot of American winemakers call their wine juice. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I just looked it up really fast on Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> Must is a freshly crushed fruit juice that contains the skin, seeds, and Mm -hmm. stems of the fruit. So the whole cluster (laughs) fermentation. Um, The solid portion of the must is called pumice, which we've talked Mm -hmm. about before, and typically makes up 7 to 23% of the total weight of the must. 7 to 23%. Okay. <laughs> must making must is the first step in winemaking, according to the very quick Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> so at the beginning, we talked a little bit about like you want in the wine world, and I would say in most artisan products, mm-hmm. even art, like part of what you're looking for is this like you want to push things kind of to the edge. Yeah. So with yeast, you don't want them to be stressed, but you want you want to kind of push them in order to make sure that they're producing some of those more nuanced flavors and more interesting flavors and aromas um, in your wine. There are a couple things that also will impact their fermentation. One is pH. So okay. in sparkling wine, we actually deal with this a little more than other people. If our pH is uh, like lower than three, sorry, lower than two, lower than three. Um, So we've picked before at like 2.85. And I know of other people that pick consistently at like 2.8 around there. Uh, You want to use a strain of yeast, a commercial strain of yeast, or if you're using native yeast, great. I don't, I'm not exactly sure. Like we've talked about, I don't have as much uh, experience with that, but if you're using commercial yeast and you have a pH that's that low, you want to find mm-hmm. a yeast that isn't going to be as affected by pH because most yeast want to ferment in like that 3, 2 to 4 or or, high, or higher range, 3, 2 plus. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you get down to like 2.8, that's, a, that's slow. <laughs> yeah. And if you think about the way the acids function, like it's it's going to start being a problem for denaturing your cell walls and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's Mm -hmm. not going to affect the yeast right away, but it might not let them ferment to finish. Okay. And the other thing that we start to see more, especially now in the U.S. and in Europe, is we see some of these really high alcohol wines. And that's not necessarily because they're adding alcohol to it. It's because they're picking at like 30 bricks, which is a huge amount of sugar. So you want to make sure you have a yeast that's able to, first of all, ferment that much sugar and Mm -hmm. withstand like their cell walls, again, will start to be denatured by the amount of alcohol they're producing. So you want to make uh, a good yeast choice for some of those. 
Because when you have that high level of bricks, correct, that's going to, because that's going to be more sugar. So that's going to be more converting. So Mm -hmm. therefore more alcohol in your wine. Yeah. When you see a a wine that's like over 14, 14 and a half percent, that was Mm -hmm. a, that was like, so that, that's one of those high alcohol wines. Most, most, well, I shouldn't because I'll get all the numbers wrong, but I would say most reds coming out of um, traditional or more old world style wines are going to be more like 12 to 13, maybe a little Mm -hmm. lower, maybe a little higher, but kind of in that 12 to 13% range alcohol by volume. And sometimes they can still add that by, like you said, the adding the nutrients, adding the sugars. So Mm -hmm. sometimes I know people add a lot or not, maybe I shouldn't say a lot, but they add sugars to their wine. And so that can also lead to those higher alcohol. That can, yeah. Even if they say pick their grapes at a bricks of 10, like you were saying, right? I believe at the top. Okay. <laughs> and it just depends region by region. There's certain regions that don't allow adding sugar. So like a lot of mm. regions in Europe don't allow their winemakers to add sugar to their wines, even if they have a, oh. a early freeze and everything mm-hmm. has to come in super early. Um, yeah. That's not a tool that's necessarily in their, their toolbox. Oh, okay. Interesting. So um, is there anything else that we should talk about? Anything <laughs> No, more? let's let's wrap this up. I'm sure I've gotten things wrong and somebody's going to mention <laughs> that I, you know, but for especially for anybody that's new to winemaking or maybe you're going from, uh, you want to understand more about winemaking because you're in wine sales or something. This is yeah. a good way to start. Like there's more than just throwing yeast in a vat and hoping that everything yeah. goes well. I think about like uh, when I heard about the theories of how like bread making and wine making started of just like leaving things out and then (laughs) certain yeasts come. And so, yeah, there's a little bit more nuanced is what you're saying than that. Like that was definitely the first start. But then um, I think you said that analogy of like the marathon runner, like the first person that ran the marathon, like they did it. But then like we have learned some tools to help make that easier, not really easier, but you know, <laughs> but, yeah. trained in more a way successful. Yeah. <laughs> so that they're more successful. Um, so back to our Olympian champions <laughs> of yeast. So, um, well, thank you so much. And I definitely, I think I might even go back and re-listen to our yeast conversation. And I was also thinking that um, I might reach out to some people that I know that do some more of that natural fermentation yeah. process with wild yeast and uh, see if maybe we can get one of them in here to to talk about that a little bit more. Could be a great conversation. So let us know if that's of interest to you as well. Or so, if you know someone that's a yeast expert or a fermentation scientist that we should talk to. So thanks everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast or just, you know, our podcast in general, please make sure to subscribe and review. Um, that just helps get our name out there. We've we've noticed a couple new subscribers, so we're really happy to have you. Um, if there are any topics that you would love to hear from us, um, shoot us a direct message on Facebook or Instagram, or you can even write us an email at whole cluster conversation at gmail.com and in the next uh, couple of weeks we're going to be talking probably about green wine wine sales um 
I don't know, just to come up a bunch of different topics. I'm kind of excited to hear maybe a couple of the other topics people might suggest. So um, <laughs> make sure to send some of those in so that we can uh, swap up what we're talking about. So with that, ciao. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Whole Cluster Conversation. Music provided by Michael Johnson of Grand Falconer. Audio production provided by our friend Ukiah Bogle. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you like to listen. Ciao.